Hello, everyone. So at this point uh, of me recording this, there is no clear winner between Trump and Biden. It seems very, very close. Um, I honestly could see it going either way at this point, day after the election night. However, if one thing has become abundantly clear to everyone, the polls were very, very wrong. Almost everywhere you looked, people were expecting Biden to win by a massive landslide, taking states like Florida and Texas even. And people didn't even think this election would be all that close at all. But as, you know, election night showed very, very clearly, that was wrong. Very, very wrong. And uh, even if Biden wins, I even have been seeing on social media plenty that the Biden supporters are very distraught with this. They cannot reconcile why this is happening. Uh, I mean, I've spoken about this before. The You know, the Trump supporters, they... They understand the Biden supporters. They know why that they're voting for Biden. But it's very clear to me that the Biden supporters do not, I mean, uh, do not understand Trump supporters. They just don't. They, everywhere I look, Biden supporters are saying, if you vote for Trump, you're evil, you're xenophobic, you're racist, you're any, you know, fill, fill in the blank. Just, just the scum of humanity. And our, the biggest post I was seeing this morning um, for why uh, Trump is winning is because it's clear that America is evil and white people are evil and don't want to give up their power and they want to keep oppressing everyone else. And I just simply commented on one of them like, okay, if this is true, then why support amongst Hispanics and African Americans actually higher for Trump this year and support uh, with white males is actually lower for Trump this year? I mean, if this country really is racist and evil, then why is, and, you know, white supremacist, then why did the Cuban Americans show up? Why are so many African Americans showing up for Trump? And far more so compared to many other Republican presidential candidates in the last few decades. At the very least, this means either, you know, the premise is wrong and perhaps this is a little bit more of a complicated conflict than just good versus evil. Or perhaps it just means, you know, white Americans woke up and, uh, you know, African those African-Americans and Hispanics who voted for Trump are either stupid or evil. That, that's probably going to be the narrative. But, I mean, if, if you're... A, personally, I think it should be the indicator that, at the very least, people who have voted for Biden should at least try to engage with some people who are voting for Trump and at least attempt to understand them. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. Today I'm going to be talking about a very specific culture who was arguably the biggest supporters of Trump and how that ties into the African-American community and why those this particular culture voted for Trump. And spoiler alert, it has absolutely nothing to do with racism. Okay, so first, how exactly do you divide up the country? Do you divide it up as north and south, east and west? Um... Do you divide it in, like, Southwest and whatnot? This was a question that um, actually kind of bothered me for a while. I was like, because I've traveled through a fair amount of the country, and I noticed that there were very, very different parts of the country. I uh, grew up in California my whole life, and when I moved to Arkansas, I was honestly like I was in a different country with some of the cultural differences. So I, you know, did a fair amount of research trying to figure out how people were dividing up the country. And I finally stumbled upon one that actually seems to be the most accurate way of dividing up the country. And 
it's something that's actually existed for centuries. So um, in Colin Woodard's uh, book, American Nations, he writes about the specific social and cultural groups that have existed in this country for centuries and go beyond state lines and international lines. Uh, includes um, nations such as Yankeedom, which was founded by um, Protestant Puritans. It includes nations such as the Deep South, which was founded by uh, bar- uh, English Barbados slave lords. It includes First Nations in Alaska, which is consists of uh, Indigenous Americans, uh, and it consists of um, you know El Norte, which is the Hispanic American community that actually goes a bit into northern Mexico and consists primarily and also consists of southern Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and southern portion of California. But the specific uh, nation I want to be talking about today is Greater Appalachia. Greater Appalachia is the nation that um, arguably was the one that won the election for Trump in 2016, and they showed up in droves this year as well. Uh, this consists of states such as Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, and a few other states like that. So today I'm hoping to talk about this particular culture and why, you know, most of these pe- a lot of these people were very politically disengaged. A lot of people never registered to vote or even voted. And yet when Trump ran, he made a connection with this particular group of people in a way that caused them to come out in droves and vote for him. I'm going to be talking about who these people are, why they voted for Trump, and how this actually uh, connects with the African-American community much, very much as well. So for starters, uh, there, when, Greater Appalachia was founded a long time ago. This was some, a nation that existed before the United States even became a true country. Um, the primary immigration patterns that created this nation consist of the Scots-Irish, the borderland and the borderlanders Scots of the lowland Scotland and the English of Northern England. So the borderlanders, um, these are the people that basically took the brunt of the multiple wars that happened between uh, Scotland and England. Uh, these were the people that, you know, grew very, very distrustful of, you know, leader, not just the English aristocrats, but the, Highlander Scots that continually destroyed their homes as well. Uh, some people fought for Robert the Bruce and William Wallace. Others fought against him. But re- regardless, both these people grew very, very distrustful of um, aristocrats and the intelligentsia and very much wanted to get out and go and find their own way. The other primary group uh, Appalachia consists of are the Scots-Irish. So go back a very, very long time ago in Scotland, Edinburgh, Scotland, you get the first uh, Protestant preachers coming in and talking about Protestantism. And this very much appealed to the Scottish. The idea that their salvation wasn't dependent on Catholic priests granting them salvation and being in their good graces, but instead was dependent on only Jesus and your individual relationship with him was something that very much took with the Scots and Protestantism basically took over Scotland. Uh, Shortly after that, uh, due to some problems in Ireland and some rising rents in Scotland, a lot of Scottish ended up immigrating to Northern Ireland, Uh, specifically uh, the Ulster Scots, I believe were the ones who immigrated to Northern Ireland. Um, and they settled there and they, you know, began integrating with the Irish as well. And a lot of Irish actually became Protestant as well. 
Um, when I actually visited Ireland, and this exists till this day, when I visited Ireland, uh, specifically Belfast, and I was at a beer bar, I specifically asked um, the people, you know, I was hanging out with some people around my age, a few people a little older, and I just straight up asked them, okay, if it were up to you, would you be part of the rest of Ireland or would you stick with the UK? Pretty much everyone in the bar unanimously were like, oh, yeah, we'd be with the rest of Ireland for sure. However, uh, as they explained to me, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, as it turns out, uh, in Northern Ireland, it's kind of split down the middle. Uh, half of Ireland, they want to are more Catholic and prefer the Irish economy and they want to be with the rest of Ireland. The other half, they're more, they're more Protestant and they actually want to stick with the United Kingdom economy. So... This division is still present in Northern Ireland to this day. And it actually helped with the English Civil War as well. Because when the uh, Protestant and Catholic um, kings were fighting over uh, Great Britain, um, one, the Catholic king ended up going to Ireland because, you know, Ireland's very Catholic. And they, he was able to get a fair amount of support until he encountered the Ulster Scots-Irish. And they began walloping on him. And it was one of the main factors that caused him to lose the war. So let's fast forward a bit. From, from Ireland, the Scots-Irish ended up immigrating to uh, Greater Appalachia, along with, again, the Lowland Scots and the Northern English Scots. So there's a few characteristics about these uh, groups of people. One of the best ones was uh, apparently there used to be a saying about the different immigrant groups. When the English first got to the New World, the first thing they would build was a church. When the Germans first got to the New World, the first thing they would build is a barn, and when the Scots-Irish first got to the New World, the first thing they'd build is a Scotch distillery. And this is actually still present to this day. Um, in Kentucky and Tennessee, those are like the two states, well, two of the biggest states that happen to be very um, Appalachian, and they also happen to be the whiskey states of the country. You know, Kentucky bourbon, and you got your unique Tennessee whiskey, and usually when people are looking for a good American whiskey, those are the states that are going to go to. A few other qualities of these people include, um, unlike most Protestants, uh, usually, usually amongst Protestants, they have a pretty strong work ethic and they tend to save money and tend to be very industrious. And I'm actually going to get into the specifics on that later. But uh, these Protestants, very, very different. Um, they really weren't all that concerned about industriousness or uh, money. Um, a lot of them characterized them as lazy. When the Midlander uh, Quakers and the um, Puritan Yankees and the Southern aristocrats would observe these people, they say, "Ugh, they're lazy, they're, they're arrogant, they're brutish, they don't honor the Sabbath, they just drink all day, like, they play loud music all the time, like, these are just a barbaric people. And a lot, and a lot of the nations actually took advantage of this, because, um, you know, as I said, the Scots-Irish and the Borderlanders had very, were very, very used to conflicts. And this very much reflected in, this isn't something they exactly gave up easy. They would usually go to war a lot with the Native American tribes, and the other nations would take advantage of this and have them basically the, be the buffer between them and the uh, you know, Native Americans. Of course, sometimes the Appalachians would actually uh, conflict with the other nations too. Um, I believe there was, according to Colin Woodard's book, there was one incident where some Appalachians were being mistreated by the Midlander Quakers in Pennsylvania, nearly tried uh, taking down uh, Philadelphia. It, it ended up being unsuccessful, but you know that type of resentment kind of, in a sense, lives on to this day. 
some other things that occurred. Um, you know, just the same as the Appalachian, you know, the Scots-Irish and the Borderlanders really didn't care for the uh, Northern Scots, Highland Scots or the uh, Southern English aristocrats. The Appalachians really didn't care all that much for the uh, Northern Yankees and the Southern aristocrats. And this reflected a few different ways. For example, during the Revolutionary War, uh, the Appalachians basically just took on whoever they thought was the bigger oppressor. Uh, a lot of them ended up uh, being very, very good fighters fighting against the British. Um, the British characterized them as white barbarians because they were very good at fighting, and they also employed a lot of Native American guerrilla war tactics. And some Appalachians, on the other hand, would go against the lords of Tidewater or the Southern aristocrats. It was basically... It didn't, whoever they were fighting, it was always for the same reason. And go against the oppressor, whoever's going to leave us alone, whoever's going to give us the most freedom, that's who we're going to be fighting for. You know, fast forward a bit to the Civil War, it's the same thing. A lot of the Appalachian uh, people really didn't support the Civil War all that much. For example, in northern Alabama, a lot of Appalachians really didn't care for the South. Um, a lot of people in Tennessee actually immigrated to Kentucky to fight for the North. Uh, Kentucky, you know, as I said, they, they're one of the biggest Appalachian states. And they were one of the only states that actually was neutral in the war. They didn't want to side with the North and they didn't want to side with the South. And West Virginia is another one. West Virginia, you know, Virginia used to be one state, but West Virginia, which is entirely Appalachian, actually seceded because they wanted to fight with the North, and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Southerners. And it was reflected in a few other states, too, like North Carolina. Um, North Carolina versus South Carolina. South Carolina is one of the states that's deepest in the deep Southern culture. Very, very deep in that culture. And this was reflected, you know, in the Civil War. They were the first to actually uh, join the start the Confederacy, whereas their neighbors, North Carolina, ironically enough, were actually the last ones to join. Because uh, around the Revolutionary War time, uh, most of the slaves really uh, didn't live in North Carolina as much. The, they were originally there for tobacco, but by the time of the Civil War, um, cotton was the primary thing, and the cotton gin had been invented. So most of the slaves had been moved uh, further down south to states like Mississippi and Alabama. So North Carolina really wasn't all that interested in fighting the Civil War, and, as I, and a fair amount of them were Appalachian as well. What ended up convincing them to fight on the side of the Confederacy, though, was less about um, wanting to preserve slavery and, you know, thinking the South was great. It was more because the Union kind of put them in the box. They either had to let the Union soldiers go through their own lands and invade and fight their sister state, or they could side with the Confederacy. And they ended up going with the latter. Uh, after the Civil War, what ended up happening with Appalachian culture is they basically just allied with the South. And it wasn't about racism, and it wasn't about, um, you know, thinking the, you know, South was great and all that. It was more just because uh, many of the Yankees began uh, occupying the Southern state, Southern and uh, Appalachian nations and, as, and began enforcing Reconstruction. And for the most part, the Appalachians just wanted to be left alone. They didn't want anyone bothering them. So how does this relate to African-Americans? Well, as it turns out, according to Thomas Sowell's uh, essay called um, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, the African-Americans actually ended up adopting this exact culture. And he makes the argument that 
Um, this is actually very much reflective of the current ghetto culture amongst African Americans. It's just the Scots Irish culture, and there's a few, a fair amount of indicators to you know support this. Um, for example, uh, income. As far as income goes, uh, African Americans actually make about as much as white Americans, a, f- a bit less, but a, but it's not all that much less. Whereas savings go, African Americans are much less likely to save money. And this was also something interesting I learned from this essay. Apparently, um, you know, African Americans had actually been living in the North for years, like with no problem whatsoever. They were pretty much assimilated into uh, the culture up there and they were able to, you know, live in the same neighborhoods as white Americans and they were able to go to parties with white Americans and all that. There really wasn't any racial divide. What ended up changing that, though, was a lot of the black rednecks ended up immigrating up there. And after that, crime ended up going up, poverty ended up going up, and um, that's when the uh, separation began and the redlining and the segregation began. So, horribly enough, there were actually African-American individuals living in places like Chicago and Detroit and all that who could, you know, who associated with white Americans perfectly fine in the late late 1800s, but weren't allowed to do that by the early 1900s. And there's also, and the, you know, the biggest pro, one of the biggest problems today is um, most people want to assume that a lot of the discrepancies happening amongst the African Americans and even the white Americans in the South is because, you know, it's just because of slavery. You know, the white Americans are doing bad in the South because of slavery and the African Americans are doing bad because of slavery. But the argument uh, Thomas Sowell makes is it has not, it really doesn't have all that much to do with that, but it's more about culture. There's a few different indicators for that. For example, um, during the 1970s, West Indies uh, would you well, African Americans from the West Indies, like Jamaica and Barbados and all that, would usually take on positions of authority, like almost exclusively. African American police officials and all that would be uh, African Americans from the West Indies, and they would make 28% more money than the uh, quote unquote uh, black rednecks. Also, in the South, um, following the Civil War, a lot of uh, Yankee missionaries ended up moving to the South and forming schools to help educate African Americans. And as a result, um, the African Americans who ended up becoming, taking positions of office and ended up, you know, taking control in a lot of the African American communities down there were those who went to Yankee schools and had adopted the uh, Yankee principles, such as uh, saving money, having a proper work ethic, being industrious, not being anti-intellectual, not having the sensitive pride and all the other Scots-Irish cultural traits. You know, and keep in mind, like, um, it's not like these cultural ideas actually stayed permanent. Um, Usually when people immigrate to other uh, nations, they end up, after a fair amount of generations, adopting that culture. And this was actually reflecting amongst the African-American communities. They, uh, between the, uh, I believe, 1940s and 1950s, the African-American community was the fastest-growing um, economic group in the country, by a lot, despite all the separation and racism and Jim Crow's laws and all the horrid things they had to definitely deal with. Despite all that, they were actually doing really well economically. Uh, to the point that, um, you know, sociologist Shelby Steele has even said African-Americans during the 1950s were doing better economically than they are now. So what ended up changing? Why didn't this trend continue? Well, as Thomas Sowell argues in his essay, it was the white liberals. 
What was really horrible is not only did the white liberals emphasize the worst parts of um, the Scots-Irish culture, such as, you know, sensitive pride, um, you know, violence, um, anti-intellectualism, and all these other things. Um, they actually de-emphasize the best parts. Um, and as Thomas Shelby has argued, one of the biggest pro- and other African-American intellectuals as well, such as John McWhorter, has argued one of the greatest... Um, problems in the African-American community, if not the greatest, is the victimhood mentality, which started with the civil rights when America basically said, okay, yes, we were wrong, we are sorry. And this caused America to basically lose its moral authority and grant African-Americans, quote-unquote, black power. And now, um, and this, in the end, ended up causing a dependence on the government to the point that the African-American family ended up being completely destroyed and African-Americans didn't really have the, you know, individual, uh, rugged, rugged individualism that for the most part characterized them and the Scots-Irish. And specifically with the family, what's really horrible is there are like dozens of stories, dozens of stories of freed slaves going to immense lengths to reunite with their family. Immense lengths. They'd travel state lines by foot. They'd spend all their money to try and free their families. They would do anything and everything to reunite with their families. Yet now, uh, single parenthood rate in the African-American community is over 70%. And violence continues amongst African-Americans. African-American young men are the only demographic who has the number one preventable death of being homicide. Every other demographic, it's um, car accidents. And again, this actually goes back to Scotland a bit. Um, When I got to visit Scotland, um, specifically Glasgow, I talked to one of the guys about it, and he talked about the differences between Edinburgh and and Glasgow. He said Edinburgh had been a bit more anglicized, and Glasgow was the real Scotland. And as it turns out, recently, Glasgow was ranked the most violent city in the world. So again, this when I say that uh, when I talk about violence and stuff, this isn't about race. This is about culture, and it's not even an Afri- It's not even like culture that originated from Africa. This is the culture of the Scots and the Scots Irish, and this is you know affected people to this. This is affecting blacks and whites to this day. I mean, Appalachian white Appalachians are not exactly doing all that great either. The poorest community in the entire country is a. A completely white mountain town in West Virginia where they have a much lower income and a much lower life expectancy compared to any other group in the country. So when I'm talking about the Appalachian culture, I'm not just talking about race. I'm talking about people, just those who have adopted the Appalachian culture. And, you know, there, while there are problems with it that need to be fixed, as I said, there are some good things too. And that now I come to the election. So why was it that these were the people that supported Trump? Why was it that the people who had never registered to vote before ended up voting for Trump? And why is it that African-Americans are are voting for Trump in numbers that are very different than any other Republican candidate in the last few decades? Well, there's there's a fair amount of explanations that can be given for it, but I think one of the simplest and arguably one of the truest explanations I give is this. Just the same as the Protestant Scots weren't interested in having their salvation be dependent on the whims of elitist Catholics in Rome, those of the Appalachian culture aren't interested in having their salvation 
be dependent on woke elitist politicians in Washington, D.C. I think that's honestly the truth. And I think this is one of the biggest things Biden supporters do not understand. You know, when people, when the news media and everyone keeps saying you have, if, and when Biden says you, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. When um, the news, when news media and everyone says if you vote for Trump, you're evil, racist, xenophobic, and the only way for you to gain salvation is to vote for Biden. No, they are not interested in what you're offering. They aren't. They don't care what you think. They're not looking for redemption, and that's what Trump was offering. He was saying, no, you're not evil. You are not the scum of the earth. And one of the best quotes I heard from Trump uh, the other day was that they don't hate you because they hate me. They hate me because they hate you. And those who have adopted the Appalachian culture are very much sick of the elitist politicians telling them that you you are stupid and you are evil and you need me to rule over you. It's just the same as the as it's just the same things that the Scots Irish and the Borderlanders had to deal with with the English lords and the Catholic priests and all the other aristocrats who told them that they're evil and that they're stupid and that they need them to rule over them. The fact is the Appalachians aren't interested in what they're offering. They don't care. And again, this isn't just a bunch of white people with white fragility or quote-unquote racists who just want to, you know, maintain their uh, power of oppression, and, and that, that's not it. They, for the most part, they just want to be left alone. And the thing is, again, this goes beyond race. African Americans are having the exact same mentality. Something horrible, absolutely atrocious I saw earlier this year was a video from two African-American women saying they've received more racial slurs and more discrimination this year than any other time in their life. Why? Because they voted conserv- because they are conservatives and they almost exclusively received all of this from the white liberals, from the white liberals who want to be their saviors, who want to help them out and tell them... It- you know, as an as a African American, you can't vote for yourself. You can't vote for you can't think for yourself. You can't vote for Trump. You have to vote for Biden. And as the polls are indicating, a lot of African Americans aren't. Again, they're not interested in the salvation the white liberals are offering. Uh, a lot of them are waking up. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Uncle Tom came out the same time as Trump's presidency. There's a resurgence of that rugged individualism amongst the African-American community, and it is great. One particular quote I love from John McWhorter about white fragility is this. White fragility is in the end, well, the book, White Fragility. White Fragility is, in the end, a book about how to make certain educated white readers feel better about themselves. D'Angelo's outlook rests upon a depiction of black people as endless, endlessly delicate poster children within this self-gratifying fantasy about how, how white America needs to think or, better, stop thinking. Her answer to white fragility, in other words, entails an elaborate and pitiless dehumanizing condescension toward black people. The sad truth is that anyone falling under the sway of this blinkered, self-satisfied, putative stunt of a primer has been taught by a well-intentioned but tragically misguided pastor how to be racist in a whole new way. So, uh, as the polls indicated, African Americans are waking up. They aren't interested in the salvation of the white 
liberals and more power to them. I want them. I, I'm glad that people are thinking for themselves. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying African-Americans who vote for Biden are bad. I just want everyone to be or that, you know, white people who voted for Biden are bad. I just want everyone to be the best they possibly can be. And I want everyone to think for themselves. But one of the biggest problems we have right now is this continued narrative that every everyone who voted for Trump is evil. African-Americans can't think for themselves. They have to vote Biden because uh, just because of their skin color, and which, which is an idea that I honestly is just so racist, so, so racist that people are thinking that. And yeah. So I want to go a little bit more into some of the qualities that white liberals specifically are saying are, well, white and not black. And sadly, amongst the, Af- the black redneck communities, African-Americans who do adopt these specific traits are considered, well, being too white. So according to, um, these are the aspects of white culture, according to, um, Washington, I think it's the museum in Washington, DC. These are the aspects. Rugged individualism. The individual is the primary unit, self-reliance, independence, and autonomy, high-valued and rewarded. Individuals assumed to be in control of their environment, you get what you deserve. Apparently, that's white. Family structure. The nuclear family. Father, mother, two to three children is the ideal social unit. Husband is breadwinner and head of household. Wife is homemaker and subordinate to the husband. Children should have own rooms, be independent. Emphasis on scientific method, objective, rational thinking, cause and effect relationships, quantitative emphasis. So uh, just to clarify, these are things that people are saying are white. You know, if you act like you are an individual, if you act like a person that can think for yourself, you are by definition white. If you live in a nuclear family, that apparently is something white. Even though, uh, as I said in a previous podcast, the number one the number one group in this country that actually lives in nuclear families are Asian Americans. White American um, fatherless rate has been rising up as a lot too uh, since the 60s, since the welfare state, especially amongst Appalachian Americans. And emphasis on scientific method. like So apparently being rational is white? So only white people can be rational? or And anyone who adopts that apparently is adopting the culture of the supposed oppressors, and they therefore need to stop that? History. Based on Northern European immigrants' experiences in the United States, heavy focus on British Empire, the primacy of Western, Greek, Roman, and Judeo-Christian traditions. Protestant work ethic. Hard work is the key to success. Work before play. If you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. Okay, let's talk about Protestantism. Let's talk about Protestantism. Before I do that, though, I do want to make um, I do want to bring up one particular topic that was brought up on the last podcast by my friend from Hungary. Uh, she didn't seem to quite understand why Americans tend to not be as reliant on government and why I don't know Americans feel like they need guns. Well, again, it kind of goes into this Appalachian culture. The people of the Appalachian culture are descended from Europeans who were basically screwed over every which way by government. The borderlanders, you know, they basically had their homes destroyed on a daily basis, lived their entire lives in war because of European governments. And that's why, you know, a lot of people of the Appalachian culture just want to be left alone. And they, so when politicians like Joe Biden come around saying, I'm going to take away your, 
guns and um, you're going to do what I want and you're going to become better and I'm going to give you salvation. Again, they're just not all that interested. There are some parts, parts of the country, though, that are a little bit more open to this, um, such as Yankeedom that, that, that was founded by the Puritans. They tend to be a little bit more utopian and they tend to be a little bit more okay with government intervention. So that's why you're going to, that's why, you know, states like Massachusetts, uh, Vermont, and uh, New Hampshire all went Biden really, really quick. Those are all the Yankee states, and they all are pretty fine with government intervention. They're fine with utopianism, and they don't really understand the Appalachians and why they, well, just the same as a lot of European people in Europe today don't understand the Appalachians and why they just, you know, want to be self-reliant and why they, uh, you know, want to keep their guns and don't want to rely on government all that much. Anyway, on to Protestantism. So, in Europe, you had a few different unique cultures that were very specifically of the very unique belief that rights pre-exist government, that you are born with freedom and that it is inalienable and cannot be taken away. Uh, those cultures are the Anglo-Saxons, the Norse, the Northern Germanic tribes, and the Dutch. Those were the freedom cultures. Those were the cultures that believed, you know, uh, we're all individuals and we all have freedoms and government can't take those away. And those were also the peoples that ingrained the primary philosophy of freedom and individual liberty that founded America and made it the country it is today. Uh, What I can't quite figure out, though, is um, admittedly where, where this individualism came from because uh, I'm not sure if the freedom came from Protestantism or if there are already present um, predilection towards Protestantism. Well, I mean, towards freedom caused them to become more Protestant because that's also one of the primary characteristics of these people. They're all very Protestant. I mean, Germany and the Netherlands are kind of mixed, but they still, for the most part, have that Protestant culture. And, as is reflected, apparently, Protestant countries are far more successful than non-Protestant countries. Some of the poorest countries in Europe, such as Portugal, um, Spain, and Italy, are all very, very Catholic, and specifically Roman Catholic, too. And then other, you know, countries that are Eastern Orthodox also are not doing very well. For example, of the ten most competitive European economies, we have Switzerland, number one. Switzerland is mixed Protestant Catholic. Germany, which uh, I already mentioned, uh, the Netherlands, already mentioned, Finland, Protestant, Sweden, Protestant, United Kingdom, Protestant, Norway, Protestant, Denmark, Protestant, Belgium. Okay, Belgium's a little bit of a special situation. One, they're a bit smaller than most European countries, and two, uh, culturally, they had a lot of influence from the Dutch and the Germans. And as I said before, the Dutch and Germans were the peoples that believed, again, that, you know, freedom is something that you're born with, not something that can be taken away by government. And finally, you have Luxembourg. Again, also a very special situation. It's a very, very small country. It um, Half the working population there doesn't even live in Luxembourg. They live in countries such as uh, Belgium, Germany, and France. And then if you... And of course, this, uh, in this supposedly Protestant work ethic, which helped, you know, fuel cap... Um, capitalism and uh, all that also helped, you know, make these countries very, very successful. And so let me get to a very specific example. I'll, I'll get specific for a second. Ireland and Norway. 
Here you have two European countries that are both very developed today, but and had fairly similar histories, but they diverged in one very, very specific way. So, you know, both countries were historically occupied by other nations. You know, the Irish were, for almost their entire history, occupied by the British, um, treated like dirt by them, and they finally got their freedom in the early 20th century. However, Northern Ireland, where all the industry was, uh, stayed with Great Britain. So when Ireland first gained its independence, it was one of the poorest countries in the world. Norway, not too different. Um, They, for a fair amount of their history, they were primarily occupied by the Danes and the Swedes. And once they ended up getting their freedom, similar to Ireland, they really, they weren't quite as bad as Ireland, but they really weren't all that great. Um, They're their economy primarily relied on fishing, and uh, their uh, development was about on par with Portugal, maybe a little worse. So where did it all change for them? Well, both ended up coming across a lot of money. Ireland, they came across a lot of money from opening up their economy, and Norway ended up opening up, coming across a lot of money by making claim over the oil reserves in the ocean. How these countries uh, differ, though, is how they spent that money. The Irish... They spent it all. Even when I was going through a walking tour in Dublin, um, the guy said, yeah, that, you know, that ugly structure in the middle of the town? Yeah, we just made that because we had, for the first time in Irish history, we had money and we just wanted to blow it all. So we made that ugly structure as a monument to our uh, uh, monetary gains. The Norwegians, on the other hand, they invested it. They invested it in what is called a... in what is called a... Ah, Sovereign Wealth Fund. More or less, it's basically a fund that the Norwegians put money into that invests in various industries all across the world, completely outside of Norway. So, And the money that comes from this either goes back into the fund or it uh, goes towards uh, infrastructure, education, healthcare, and other things the Norwegians would... Uh, need. And estimates seem to indicate that the wealth of this fund that belongs to the Norwegians uh, means that each Norwegian is, has roughly a value of over 200,000 American dollars. So that's a little bit about the differences between Protestant and uh, on a large social level, the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism. You know, as I said, currently in this country, we have this narrative that such things that come with Protestantism are quote-unquote white, and therefore things that African-Americans shouldn't be practicing. And this is absolutely horrible. The fact is, those who have adopted the Appalachian culture, black, you know, African-American or white, it really doesn't matter because, again, Appalachian white Americans are doing horrible. Horrible. I watched the documentary Hillbilly recently, and there's Appalachian towns where literally the only jobs that are offered are either Walmart or Cole. Obviously, neither of those are very, very good avenues. But as has continually been proven, uh, those who have adopted the, you know, Protestant, quote-unquote Protestant culture, you don't even need to think of it as Protestant, just certain aspects of the Protestant culture end up becoming very, very successful. For example, Scotland. Scotland, where all the culture began. That For most of their history, they were the poorest, most intellectually challenged country in all of Europe. Most of the Scots lived in clans that were very isolated from the rest of the world. They spoke Gaelic and they, they were very, by the time they ended up going across 
um, to America. They were, you know, finally were able to come across some wealth because for the most part, they, you know, were lived very, very poor lives. All that changed, though, in the uh, 18th century when Scottish began becoming, quote-unquote, anglicized. As I mentioned earlier, Edinburgh ended up becoming anglicized, adopting certain, um, you know, Anglican ideas, such as being intellectual, um, adopting English, uh, you know, I don't know, the proper work ethic and the proper morals. And you know what happened? Oh, practically overnight, they became one of the hubs of intellectualism, like the hubs, like during the Scottish um, Enlightenment period, it produced some of the greatest minds we have ever known from uh, Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, to David Hume, the patron saint of atheism. And to, and they even sort of ended up, it, it even went further. They didn't just um, go end up being on the same level as the other European countries. They ended up surpassing them in some aspects. In engineering and medicine, the Scottish ended up surpassing the English in those industries, and many others, too. Like, the Scottish ended up becoming very, very successful. And this is even reflected to this day. Um, some of the most successful um, uh, groups in this country happen to be Scottish and Irish immigrants, which, and they end up actually, last time I checked, have a higher median income than German immigrants, who were historically the some of the most successful people in the world. And as for comparison, the Scottish and Irish well, who recently immigrated here make a substan- like very, very high um, median income, like top 20 easy. Whereas uh, white Americans who were descended from the uh, Scots and Irish that immigrated here centuries and centuries ago make below the, aver- the median uh, American income. So what are my final notes on all this information? Well... The primary uh, message Thomas Sowell has for with all of this and everything he studied is success doesn't come from government intervention. No group on earth has ever been able to be successful through government intervention. There's plenty of cases of people who are massively discriminated against ended up becoming very successful. This was another part of the uh, Black Redneck and White Liberal book, a whole essay dedicated to just the minor the quote-unquote middleman minorities, people who are massively discriminated against, yet despite that, ended up becoming some of the most successful people in those countries. The Chinese in Southeast Asia were very much a minority, uh, very much discriminated against, yet they ended up owning over 80% of the wealth in those, the countries they immigrated to. Similar cases with the Indians in East Africa, the Jews pretty much everywhere, the Armenians, the Ottoman Empire, the Japanese in Peru, and many, many more cases. The fact is, as Thomas Sowell points out from a study of economics and history, success doesn't come, you know, if you're discriminated against, and again, I, I understand African Americans are discriminated against in, in this country in some ways. I, I don't think it's quite as, I think it's safe to say it's not nearly as much as it used to, but I think it's safe to say that there are hurdles. But as history shows, success doesn't come from government intervention. It doesn't come from some supposed savior. It comes from adopting the proper morals and culture. And the fact that we have many, many people in this world actively telling African Americans not to adopt these traits, not to go on the path that has proven to lead to success is anti-human. It's, it's beyond excuse. It's horrible. The fact that African Americans who are successful and do these amazing, amazing things are 
and you know the ones that happen to adopt conservatism are actively being discriminated against more so than arguably any other group in the country is beyond horrible it's unacceptable it is anti-human and i don't get it i don't get it one other one final note tom thomas uh no shelby Steele. he um in his recent video he did with ben shapiro where he talked about some of the things i mentioned earlier his main message to white americans is this if you want to help african americans regain your moral authority stop letting yourself believe that you are evil you're not stop letting yourself be bullied into you know saying that you're racist when in fact you're not regain your moral authority because every day you don't you are not just you are hurting him and other african americans like him and and again with this all this cultural stuff it's not this isn't even just racial it's it's just adopting the proper practices that lead to success. Final notes on why Trump won in 2016 and why he's doing much better than predicted in 2020. Biden was offering salvation. Trump was saying, you don't need to be saved. He wasn't some politician or intellectual, well, pseudo-intellectual or some, you know, woke person saying, I, you need me to save you. He said, no. I'm going to give you the tools to be able to save yourself. The fact is, you don't need salvation from me because you don't need to be saved. You are not evil, you are not racist, and you do not need to apologize for being born. You do not need to apologize for your culture. You do not need to apologize for existing. Because the fact is, this country is not evil. It is not racist. And has done more to liberate people from bondage and done more for the freedom has spent more resources in an attempt to free other people around the world than any other civilization except for possibly great britain but i'm gonna get into that more next week fact is the people of the appalachian culture especially agreed with it and you know it was reflected with the numbers african-american unemployment at its lowest ever massive job increases even after even with covid the jobs that have come back with what trump has done has been amazing far better than any economist has been able to predict and that's what trump's providing he's not giving people the means to he's not saving people he's giving them the tools to be able to save themselves and that's what a lot of americans want they're not looking for government handouts they're not looking for the government to be dependent on the government they're looking to be well autonomous individuals making their own destiny because that's what this country was founded on that's why people came here to be able to go on the abrahamic adventure and make their own way and the fact is, this is what breeds success, as history and economics seem to show. When people are treated as individuals, when they're given the tools to succeed, then they do it. They don't. Success doesn't come from some great savior uh, helping people out. It comes from people, you know, treating everyone like individuals, and it comes from people taking on responsibility and proper morals and ethics the fact that the the fact that the national museum of african-american history and culture is specifically saying treating people like individuals and doing things such as being uh, at work on time and working hard are somehow specifically white and therefore you know 
if an African-American were to practice these things, that is an act of, you know, I don't know, cultural oppression or something like that, is horrible. We can all be successful. We can all be great. We can all adapt, take on the tools that are necessary to do that. I will admit, uh, there is one, there is one thing I think that should be disclaimed. The fact is, a lot of Western civilization hasn't been great at portraying itself. Because of the history of oppression, a lot of the ideas that have been portrayed have caused... Well, the fact that a lot of these ideas have come from the historic oppressors has caused people to, you know, not want to adhere, them, adhere to them. Like, for example, um, one of the biggest reasons Christianity didn't take hold in India was because the uh, missionaries weren't able to separate culture from values. So what happened was, you know, the missionaries went to India, they were trying to convert people, and then they would encounter Indian weddings where the bride would wear red. Now, of course, according to European standards, that that is unacceptable. Red is the color of passion and lust and, uh, you know, all the things that you don't want for a wedding. You know, what you want for a wedding is uh, white. The bride must be wearing white to symbolize purity. And they were telling the Indian people, no, no, she can't wear red. She has to wear white. Of course, they were little did they know the fact that red actually in Indian culture symbolizes fertility and is usually a very good omen for weddings, whereas white is the color of death and sickliness and would be a very bad omen for weddings. But because of this uh, social disconnect and because of the fact that the missionaries couldn't separate just, you know, arbitrary cultural factors from true values, the message overall ended up not coming through. And I honestly think that's quite possibly one of the greatest problems that we're facing today. People just are simply saying that because certain practices have come from the historic oppressors, they therefore should not be done. But as I said with Scotland, they once they employed the uh, tools that were utilized originally by their Anglican overlords, in many ways they ended up beating them at their own game. And that's what I suggest to those who have... Ad- who are of the Appalachian culture. Just adopt the proper tools to be able to beat the elites and the pseudo-intellectuals at their own game and be able to make this world a better place. Finally, I don't know. Focus less on politics. Politics is exhausting. Remember the important things in life like family and religion and you know, treat, being, being good to the people you encounter in your life and Do the best you can to make this world a little better than when you got into it. It's the best thing you can do. Thank you for listening, and I uh, will talk to you again next week.